Hey everyone, my name is Josh Proctor and this is the Life on Side B podcast. On this podcast, we are going to discuss, as the name pretty much clearly states, what life as Side B LGBT Christians is really like. For those of you who don't know, Side B is a term used to refer to Christians who are LGBT, attracted to the same sex, or have gender dysphoria, yet hold a traditional view of sexuality and marriage, and therefore live according to that view. Every episode, I will be talking with different Side B Christians about different aspects of their life, faith, and experiences. My goal with this podcast is to show that being Side B is not this depressing life of self-hatred and loneliness, but rather, it can be pretty dang beautiful and amazing. Now, every season, we will be focusing on a different theme of sexuality and faith issues related to the lives of Side B Christians. This season, though, I am really excited because we are going to be looking at different ways Side B Christians live out their sexuality and find intimacy and community. Each of these interviews has been a huge encouragement, even for me, as I navigate what community and belonging look like in my own life. You will be able to see that there are so many different ways that Side B Christians can live with joy within their faith. And in that way, I hope it can be an encouragement for you too. So with that, let's head into today's episode. Hey everyone, so today I am joined by David Gill to discuss the book Costly Obedience. This is an episode I've been looking forward to doing for a while, and it's taken a little bit before we could do it because I needed to read the book and David needed to read the book. So we've been trying to figure out how we can do this and when we can do this. And the episode was so much fun to make. The thing is, it went a little bit longer than we expected. Uh, So this is the first time the episode is going to be split up in part one and part two because there was just so much good content. I didn't really feel right of taking much of it out. So you guys will get the chance to hear our whole entire discussion over the next two weeks. And I really hope that you enjoy it. But preface... Um, If I sound dead in this episode, it is because the night before I had been on, well, actually the whole day before, I had been on a bus for more than 24 hours dealing with my Columbia visa situation. Dear Lord, I have so much respect for people going through immigration issues because it is exhausting. So just FYI, when you hear me and you wonder, hmm, why does he sound dead? There is a reason. I promise I'm not on drugs. So with that, really hope you enjoy it and that you get a lot out of this conversation as much as I did. Today, I am joined by the one and only David Gill. David, thank you so much for joining. Absolutely. Glad to be here. This is going to be great. Uh, before we start, could you give a little bit of an introduction about yourself sure. for everyone listening? Yes. So uh, I've grown up in St. Louis my entire life. I left town for my undergrad degree in Springfield, Missouri, 
I took a couple of victory laps. So that was the best six and a half years of my life. And then it wasn't. I have a master's of divinity, if I could say that, master's of divinity from Covenant Theological Seminary, which I earned in 2015. Grew up in a religious uh, household, a homophobic family, I would say. I identify as gay and I'm a Christian. Um, I don't know. Have I ever told you the story about me coming out to my mom? No, please tell. Okay. So I was working for a large church. My mom and I were both working for a large church here in St. Louis that for the purposes of this podcast will remain nameless. And we were hosting a big leadership summit, which for those in the know will know where I'm talking about now. And they had this thing where if you registered for the leadership summit, but you couldn't swap out your name, you had to identify yourself as the first person who'd registered for that slot. So for example, if Linda had a reservation and Bill was going to take her place, Bill had to walk up to the registration table and say, I'm here for Linda's materials. And this question was being asked because that was kind of odd. This question was being asked of one of the secretaries and the secretary looks at the other secretary who's asking this question says, oh, well, Bill's just going to have to be Linda and says it kind of with a sneer and, and the flick of the wrist, that old limp wrist thing that people used to do when making fun of gay people. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't having any of it. They were standing in my office when they did it and I wasn't having it. And I got super pissed and I herded all these middle-aged women out into the hallway. There were two things wrong with this. Three things wrong with this. First, my mom was in that group of people because my mom was a secretary at the church and I was not out to her. Second, I herded all these people out, but the windows, there were big plate glass windows in the front office. So I wasn't actually like herding them out of my sight. They were still staring at me. Yeah. And the door was on this hydraulic that closed very slowly. So there was no way to make a point with me closing the door. It just sort of closed very slowly. So the next day on the way to work, my mom is being uncharacteristically quiet. And I'm like, crap, she's going to bring it up. She's going to bring it up. She's going to bring it up. And two thirds of the way to church, she brings it up. And she's like, what was yesterday all about? I'm like, what are you talking about? And she says, why do you always defend gay people? And I said, I, what? I don't always defend gay people. She said, do you always defend gay people? I said, no. What happened yesterday was not funny. Anybody could have walked off the street. There are people at church who have relatives who are gay, blah, 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 blah. And she looks at me and cuts me off and says, are you gay? And I like, what is she asking me in that moment? Is she asking me if I have a boyfriend, if I have lots of sex, do I do drugs? Mm -hmm. Do I go to parties? Like, what is she asking me? Well, she's a middle-aged woman who's always grown up in the Midwest. Like she's asking me all of those things. But as I'm trying to process through that, I hesitate. And anyone who's argued with their parents know that he who hesitates is lost. And so he goes, you are, and starts swerving on the highway, Josh swerving Mm. i'm like holy crap i'm gonna go meet jesus so we get to church she runs up to her office and she's crying and she's just she's utterly in tears and i'm like oh my gosh this is not going to go well she had my dad come up and get me from church at the end of the work day because she was just like i can't i can't ride home with you and it didn't get brought up again until like three or four years later how old were you at this point I was in college. So I was probably about 20. Yeah. And that was me coming out to my mom. (laughs) Wow. Okay. Well, thankfully you're safe from that car ride. I'm safe from the car ride. Yes. I'm. Yeah. 
I was about 20 at the time and I'm about 37 now. So it's, yeah. And kind of like connecting to that then, because I like to ask everyone who comes on this, can you share a little bit then about how you've gotten to where you're at in reconciling your faith and sexuality? Yeah. So back then I was like, you know, if I pray, God will change me. Like this is a done deal. Like this is just a matter of sanctification. But instead of that happening, what's been happening in the past 17 years since that happened is that I've realized that God is shaping me differently. At least functionally, God is shaping me differently. Mm -hmm. Um, He brought me a lot of friends. He has brought me a lot of encouragement. He's brought me things like Revoice and the way I'm able to serve there because I'm the music director for Revoice at the the time of this recording. And I... Mm. I'm using my gifts of ministry in that way. And it's just become very clear to me that God's will for me at this point in my life, and I think generally, that God is not about changing who I like. God is about bringing me people to do life with and to making me look more like Jesus. Hmm. And that's, so so I identify as gay. I have no problem doing that. I know for some that's a, a big deal or a hot button and it's just not with me. I, I've, I've made peace with that. So yeah, that's sort of where I'm at. Okay. Yeah. Well, I agree. And you know, the fun part for people listening is that we <laughs> met each other. How many yes. years ago? 11. 11. Was that 2008 or was that? Yeah, that was 2008. 2008 so, yeah. so 11 so i would have been 17 and i would have been 26 26 yes because for everyone listening we actually ironically met at an exodus conference mm-hmm. um, irvine california irvine yep. california yeah back in the day when yeah i was trying to figure out what the hell i believed <laughs> Yeah. Uh, going in between side A and, and X gay. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's been interesting because we knew each other back then. Mm-hmm. And then for a while, we never talked. Right. And then at Revoice, we, it was the first Revoice that we really reconnected again. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, because right. I still remember going out to dinner with you. Mm-hmm. And then we started like chatting about yeah. like how everything's been in the past yeah. decade. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Cause it really was about 10 years from the time we'd last texted. Yeah. At dinner. At yeah. Meeting. It was literally yeah. almost on the dot. Yeah. Well, because also because the exist conference used to be in, in it happened in June. And then, yeah, I thought it was either June or July. Yeah, that was my sense. I have a, I have a notebook from, oh God, I have a notebook from then. I haven't told you this, have I? No, you have. Okay, so Boy Erased, when they're talking about like your trauma iceberg, yeah. I was like, that seems familiar. And I started digging through a notebook that I had with me at Exodus in 2008. Yeah, you showed and it, it was to in me there. and it me back. Yeah, I was like, oh my I gosh, like, what on earth? Oh, that's right, I did send it to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. Which oh, yeah. it's so fun. So I have the worst memory ever. Uh, mm-hmm. Again, I probably, I've, I think I've said that multiple times in this podcast and don't remember that I've said it multiple times in this podcast about <laughs> my memories. And it was so funny because 
I had totally blocked out so many things that happened at Exodus in my mind. Like I remember going, but Mm -hmm. I don't remember a ton of things that happened. And so then seeing your notebook, like brought back all this stuff, like, Oh crap, that all happened. That all happened. (laughs) That was real. That was real. Mm -hmm. Um, Wow. Yeah. Yeah, It's definitely been a journey and, Mm -hmm. um, It's so interesting, especially as gay Christians, how just you go back and forth of trying to figure out what in the world you believe, what in the world you're supposed to do. And you're trying to work off of the information that you have, (laughs) whatever time periods you're in. It's interesting then looking back and seeing how we get to where we're at, you know, no matter where you Mm -hmm. end up landing in in all of this mess of stuff. Okay. Well, then, with that, we're going to head, I guess, into our review. For anyone listening, going, what in the world is costly obedience and why is it important to this conversation? Uh, So, Costly Obedience is Mark Yarhouse's new book, which he has done quite a few books on LGBT issues. And I would really recommend, and especially LGBT issues related to faith, especially, from what I understand. I haven't read a ton of his stuff, but what I do know is that a lot of his stuff is really good. It's very, how would you describe it? It's erratic. It's very, it's very, it's research-based. Yes. That's what I was looking for. To us. Yeah. Uh Yeah. Yeah, It's a very research-based thing because of him being a psychologist. So this book is a survey of people in the side B community. And so people who identify as celibate and gay Christians looking at what they believe, their relationship to the church, their relationship to the LGBT community, all of those different facets of this whole thing. So it's very groundbreaking. It's really the first study like this, uh, specifically Mm -hmm. looking at side B Christians. And so I was really excited to read it and I got a lot out of it, even just realizing more about myself in some ways. Yeah. I mean, what would you say was your overall feeling after reading it? Well, first of all, I was super happy to see stories presented in a fair way where I wasn't the villain. But I think also with that comes this very heavy, heavy realization that there's just so much work for someone like me who has a blog and friends who are pastors. Like I just, I have a mm-hmm. lot of work to do as someone who can speak into those arenas. So it's, yeah. it, it left me with a sense of, okay, this is, this is the task in front of me and others like me, not just me, obviously, but yeah. It definitely gave an understanding of like what has been done, but then just showed different things in the area of where where we need to grow as a church and where we need to be looking for in general towards the future. So then how we're going to do this is we're going to kind of just go chapter by chapter as much as we can. Obviously, we're not going to be able to look at every detail of this book, but just to give a general overview of it and our thoughts and just talk. <laughs> with whatever comes to mind as we go through it. (laughs) So chapter one was interesting. Kind of gives an overview of just generally the research. Well, I mean, the preface goes a little bit more into research, but he does give a few general understandings of what do they mean by church, terminology, all of that kind of stuff. But then where it gets really interesting is that part of their study of the study was they not only surveyed celibate gay Christians, but they also surveyed pastors and so it was interesting to look at some of the responses of what the pastors believed, how they kind of interacted with LGBT people in general, and then specifically celibate gay Christians. So what did you think about that whole part of the study? 
Yeah. So I think that it was really instructive to see kind of where pastors are sort of at in the conversation, right? So some of them are like, you know, I feel woefully inadequate to address this sort of thing, or I feel like we need clearer terminology, or I feel like, you know, this sort of conversation makes me uncomfortable because it creates, I don't know, a separate class of Christian that we're dealing with instead of treating sin struggles the same. You know, it's just, it was really instructive to me to kind of get a feel for how these folks are sort of thinking through this, even if it's not in a clear and concise way. And to be clear, I'm talking about pastor's thoughts about it, not the way it's presented in the book. It's it's presented very systematically in the book and very clearly in the book. But it was fascinating to me to sort of see where different types of pastors are at. Yeah, I think there was two things that really stuck out to me with this chapter and this discussion of pastors, which was, well, I think three things. But first of all, where, where they talk about how what they found was that congregants and members of churches who feel unsure about what what they believe will will mimic the posture of their pastors or their leaders. Mm-hmm. And I think that that just shows how critical it is as pastors that we have to be very careful with how with how we are acting and with how we are presenting not only in our words but in our actions because the church is looking I think it's really important how, for instance, Bill Henson from Lead Them Home explains that it has been found that a lot of times when um, conservative Christian parents reject their LGBT children and they're asked why they rejected their children, there have been many that have responded saying that the reason why they rejected their children was because they felt it's what their pastor wanted them to do. And that pastors have been shocked, many pastors have been shocked that that's a response, but we don't realize that even the very nuanced, like the very nuanced or the very subtle things that we do can give off that understanding that, oh yeah, I'm supposed to reject my child or I'm supposed to not be around gay people. And we may not think that that's the message we're giving, but it can be. Mm-hmm. That's absolutely true. That's yeah. absolutely true. And then, and then on the flip side of that, I think it was interesting how he... He noted that pastors, I'm just going to quote this uh, from page 36. It says, pastors who reported a higher degree of comfort often shared how they had friends or family members who identified as gay and how these relationships provided them as opportunity, an opportunity to become more comfortable discussing same-sex sexuality, which they otherwise might not have experienced. So mm-hmm. it, again, it, it, I think that also shows the importance of what the impact happens when you do have a family member or someone in your life, because then it no longer becomes a theological or philosophical understanding, but it becomes real people. I mean, you have a face to put to this discussion. And so I I think it just shows that you can never underestimate the impact of having, of knowing an LGBT person in your life as a pastor or leader, as anyone. Um, So for, yeah, I, yeah, I, de- I definitely hear that. I think, I think there's another thing too, and that is that people who are more likely to be abusive toward people who are of a different sexual orientation than straight will tend not to hang out in churches where pastors have more comfort in talking about same-sex sexuality. Yes. So in that way, a pastor can actually, by their example keep wolves out Mm -hmm. 
And I think that's something that we haven't really, at least the circles that I'm running in, we haven't talked about that sort of way of keeping people safe very yes. often. But I think it's, I think it's something that's worth further consideration. But yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And I think the other part that was especially key for me in this chapter was, and this is just something I so often see in church discussions and everything, which is the need for nuance and precision in the words that we use. Because for instance, um, pastors will say things like homosexuality is a sin. Well, what does that mean? You know, like what what are you meaning in that term homosexuality? Because a lot of times people will have different understandings of that word. And it. I think that this is also a whole nother thing in many people listening, obviously probably have seen the whole thing that has happened with, with Bethel Church lately <laughs> um, yes. and yeah. everything that has happened with them and the change movement. And again, one of the biggest issues that I see in just the way that they talk about it is the issue of needing to have clarity of what are they meaning by the terms because they'll use terms that are very vague. And I think that churches as Christians and as pastors and as Christian leaders, we have to make sure that we are having, we are being very clear in the message that we're presenting and the words that we're using. Absolutely. It's, 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 I think it does damage to the language and to clear communication for a pastor to say homosexuality is a sin without talking about, without using words that indicate what they mean by that. Right. Yes. So one can be very clear by saying something like gay sex falls outside the purview of biblically endorsed sexual practice and is therefore a sin. That is a very Mm -hmm. clear articulation of what the traditional sexual ethic is. But if we're talking about, if we're just talking about homosexuality generally, it doesn't, it doesn't do any honor to the way that the words are used now in terms of what the semantic range of that word is, all the different types of meanings it can have. I, mm-hmm. I think there's another deeper, maybe not deeper, but adjacent problem. And that is when sexual orientation is talked about primarily as a sin struggle. Like, well, I have the same sin struggles being a straight person as you do as a gay person. Yes. So we shouldn't have to talk about gay stuff versus straight stuff. We should just talk about holiness. And there is a time and a place to talk about holiness in mm-hmm. those sorts of terms. The trouble that I have is that there are sin struggles that a straight man or woman faces that I don't understand. But much of what I, for example, wrestle with are not neatly fit into the category of a sin struggle. Some of it's just the way the effects of the fall sort of affect me on a given day, right? So two people jog by me in the park, one of them a guy, one of them's a girl. If all things are equal, I notice the guy and I don't see the girl at all in terms of attraction, right? Which doesn't mean I'm lusting after one of them. It just means I'm predisposed to notice one of them prior to it, to, to you know, over and above the other person, if that makes sense. But then gone on further is that the sin struggle is seen as like analogous to some kind of an addiction. Well, it's the same thing as, I, I think this was in a, a Gospel Coalition article recently where the person's like, well, you know, I choose not to identify with my sin. I choose to identify as being in Christ. And it's like, okay, hold on, hold on a minute here. The experience of being gay isn't analogous to addiction. It's a sexual orientation. It's analogous in that sense to the experience of being straight. And because the fall affects everything, right? Adam and Eve's rebellion screws everything up. Like 
those are the sorts of questions that need to be asked. How is this screwed up slightly differently from someone who's straight? Mm -hmm. And if there's too much ignorance on the part of leadership of conservative churches, then we're, we're kind of failing at this discussion because like the ignorance is breeding either latent or open hostility to folks who experience life differently from that of the average straight person. So like coming back to the question of how to use the word homosexuality clearly, like homosexuality in scripture is something which is always an act. They didn't, they didn't talk about it in terms of an orientation. There's nothing wrong mm -hmm. with talking about it as an orientation, I don't think. But there's the sense in which we need to be able to talk about homosexuality in the way that they talked about it, but using words that make sense now. So it's the homosexual act, right? Yes. So like it, it names the sin that's located in thought, word, and deed, but it's not an identity marker or cultural expression in the New Testament. And so we need to be able to talk about things as the New Testament did, but with an eye to the language, how it's used now. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I totally agree with what you were saying because I always try and tell Christians, do not try and sin, like do sin comparisons. Just don't. Right. It doesn't work if, just because you say alcoholism. Oh, well, it's the same as me dealing with alcohol. Well, now all a gay person hears you saying is, oh, you're calling me an alcoholic. That's all that we hear. And or so, a sex addict. Or, or a sex addict, right, yeah. yeah. And so I just think it's so much better when the sin comparison doesn't happen because the person is not hearing equality of sin. All they're hearing is saying, oh, you're calling me a murderer. You're calling me an alcoholic. Because ironically, I do hear that comparison a lot. Oh, it's just like murder. I'm like, well, that makes me feel better. Right. Is that supposed to? But I do agree with what you were saying is that the Bible always talks about actions, but we infer from our 21st century mind orientation that somehow it's saying that the attractions, they, are, they themselves are sin, when it's really talking about the actions and what we do with our desires. But kind of going into chapter two, chapter two talks about the church, uh, no, uh, celibate gay Christians and the LGBT community. And especially that relationship because the relationship between celibate gay Christians and the LGBT community is many times very interesting. Uh, so what did you take away from this chapter? So on page 65, he said, that, he said that the relationship between LGBTQ culture and celibate gay Christians is a tenuous one. And that's definitely true. Like there just are many ways in which we don't fit anywhere. Right. So my own personal experience with friends who are either side A or agnostic or ex-Christians really does bear this out. Like it takes a lot of listening on my part to befriend them. They're usually very suspicious. They're like, you believe what? How normative is this supposed to be? Oh, girl, I don't think so. Like, mm -hmm. now, so, so the listening is super important. Now, I should be listening anyway, right? That's, make, that's what makes a good friend. Yeah. Uh, but when someone complains about their upbringing or what church was like, like, I listen and I affirm whatever I can, and I don't defend the church right then. I wait. And with some folks, I'm still waiting. Like, and that's okay. Like, that doesn't make me conflict averse, right? Like, 
I defend my position to still wait on them because I, I've been a worship leader and I've been generally involved with ministry most of my life. So my allegiance to the church and her teachings aren't news to anyone. Right? Yeah. And secondly, the way I live my life bears this truth out. Like my commitments are on my sleeve. Some evangelical churches only talk about um, the watching world when it's convenient. Like you're Jesus to the watching world, right? We've, some of us have heard that. But I can tell you in my case, folks with whom I disagree are very, very aware without me saying anything that I disagree with them. So yeah. in my case, I don't have to lead with, yeah, but like I disagree with that because, right? Instead, I'm there to create space for them to ask me about my beliefs much later sometimes. And they almost always do at certain points. Like I've got a side A friend who is like, I know we disagree on these kinds of things. I know there are major, major faith commitments that we disagree on, but I can still be your friend because I know when you disagree and you don't lead with that. Like, exactly. But we have the sort of relationship that like he knows. So yeah, I, I really, I, I find it problematic on some level that like there isn't already a pre-made place for us mm-hmm. as celibate Christians to like who are gay. Yeah to really have a place to call home, which is like why I'm really grateful that your house is doing this sort of research and why things like revoice and lead them home exist. Right. Like Mm -hmm. this, this gives us something now to go, Oh, I'm not just on the outs here. There's actually, there might actually be a place for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of um, which I, don't I don't recall him mentioning this in this chapter, but I think it would have been fascinating because this is what something that I've noticed is there's really two sides of how side B Christians relate to the gay community, the LGBT community in general. And I think it really shows the two sides of the side B community because you have some side B Christians who came out of, you know, either they they've never had experience with the general LGBT community. They've come out of a very, very conservative Christian community, and then they come out and then they go right from that community to being side B, and that's where they stay. So normally those are the side B Christians who might not necessarily feel as comfortable using the term gay to describe themselves, or they're, they don't really embrace a lot of aspects of the LGBT community beyond just the fact of acknowledging that they are attracted to the same sex. Right. Um, and so then they get kind of weary of times when si- other side B Christians, you know, connect more with the L- general LGBT community. And then you have other side B Christians who don't really do see the general LGBT community as part of their family, as a home for them or connected to it, whether or not they were originally side A or non-Christian, or even if just they just have a deeper connection with it. And I think that that's always interesting. Even yesterday I was meeting with a side B Christian who is not, you know, extremely out yet, but he was even saying, he's like, it's really it's really a big deal for me to get to know even other side B Christians who are more comfortable in like general queer culture. And he's Mm -hmm. like, because I'm not used to it and I don't know what to do with it. Mm -hmm. And so I think then even in the side B community, we have this kind of two sides to the whole thing of how we feel connecting with the general LGBT community. And then I totally agree with you, you know, even with my, 
my gay friends who are not Christian or are side A, many times I don't need to tell them right from front, like, hey, this is my belief. And this is how it'll like, there's a general understanding that, yeah, we're different. We live differently. We believe different things. And, and some of that just naturally comes up and I don't need to be throwing my views down people's throats um, in order for that to be acknowledged. Um, That just, it naturally happens. And sometimes I, I also don't share it right off the bat because I don't want people to take their views of other people and automatically equate that to me. Uh, I would rather them get to know me as a person, my gay friends, and then be able to say, yeah, this is also a part of my life. You know, like you've gotten to know me and here's another part of my life. That's not average for LGBT people, but yet it's, it's real and it's important for my life, but it does, it makes it hard at times connecting with other gay people because it's a part you have to explain just as much as in the Christian community. Well, and I think for me, my uncomfortability at first about not announcing what I thought all the time is rooted in what I think I'm going to start calling panic evangelism, right? It's this idea that you've only got this one conversation to tell Mm. people the truth. Yes. And first of all, that's just not how normal relationships work. And I can tell you that if that's the way you lead with a conversation, you probably will only have that one conversation to tell them what you think because they're (laughs) going to think you're crazy and they're never going to want to hang out with you again. Mm -hmm. So like instead of kind of going with the panic evangelism of if you died tonight, right? Like I'm not saying there's never a time and place to ask that question. I'm saying like give the Holy Spirit a little more room to work. Trust Mm -hmm. the process of developing a relationship where you actually win some credibility like not everything has to be a drive-by assault yeah Yeah, i totally agree yeah so i yeah like give it space y'all now if if you're listening to this and you're the sort of person who just oh good i don't have to have hard conversations with um let me let me disabuse you of that narrative by having anything that resembles a biblical outlook on anything. If you have an opinion about anything, biblical or not, you're gonna at some point have to defend it or you're just yeah. not going to have the courage of your convictions. So like this is not this is not an effort to be less confrontational. This is about treating people like you want to be treated. This is mm-hmm. about about honoring people and giving them worth and value so that you don't uphold your views as being more important than them. Mm-hmm. which yeah. doesn't mean I don't think I'm right. If I didn't think I was right, dude, I have a boyfriend. I'm dateable, right? Mm-hmm. There is no reason though that I should have to mow someone down and articulate something at every possible opportunity in order to communicate the truth of the gospel in my life. There yeah. is truth to this thing that actions speak louder than words. And if I'm able to do both, at the proper times, then I'll be doing what I'm supposed to be doing. But not everything has to have a moral in well, and that's why I don't have a boyfriend or sex. Go thou and do likewise. Like it's just, it's, it just, yeah. It's, yeah. it's difficult, you know, and that's one of the things I, I have a few friends who are very passionate about door to door evangelism. And mm-hmm. I, I think that there's huge, great things about that because there's people that are just ready to hear the gospel. And in those Absolutely. kind of ap- atmospheres, they do. 
Um, I just think that we also, when sharing about our faith, we also have to take into account that not everyone's going to be ready in a one and done conversation to hear about the gospel. And many times if you are not, if you are not careful to really know the person before sharing the gospel, doing that in the first conversation could actually harden their heart more to Christianity than, than open it up more. And that's exactly. And so you just, we have to be willing. And I think the other part is like, I've talked to some of my friends who are, their passion is evangelism. And I love it. It's just knowing that just because a person's not ready to hear about Jesus in the first conversation doesn't mean you just leave them to go find people who are. That just means that, yeah, it's going to take time and it's going to take relationships to be able to show them the love that God has for them, you know? And I think that's why Jesus had no problem going into people's homes and Mm -hmm. living with them because he knew that evangelism is not just a matter of words, but deeds and actions. Yes. And it has to be both. Yeah, it has to be. I have to be willing to show you by my actions that God loves you. And I think that that's so, so vitally important. You know, the other part of this chapter that really hit me, I thought that he did well was the part about talking about the gay script. And I think that, um, you know, he talks about how there's, there's a gay script in the sense of a cultural expectations for making meaning of our experience Mm -hmm. of being gay. And so he says like, there's just things that there's points, you know, I need to acknowledge that in a previous episode, I actually said that there were six points. Uh, I was wrong uh, because again, memory bad. Uh, And there's only four. (laughs) Um, But the whole thing he talks about is that, a lot of the general LGBT community and the conservative church take it as you need to accept all these points or none of them. And the side B community is going, it's more nuanced than that. Right. We can agree on some points and disagree on others. And we can still be part of the, the LGBT community. And uh, I think the hardest part that is really difficult for conservative Christians to understand about LGBT Christians is that many times we see the LGBT community as our family. And we can relate mm-hmm. to them in that way. And so then conservative Christians take that as meaning that we agree on every point of the LGBT mm-hmm. community, that because they're family. And I'm saying, if your understanding of family is that you agree on every point with your family, I need to learn from your family. Because I don't know of a single family that you agree with everything <laughs> on with your family. Right. right. Um, just because we're family doesn't mean that we agree on everything. Just like... Right every family in existence. Mm -hmm. And so I really like how he brought clarity to that point about there's points, but we can, there's nuance within that. It was really interesting to bring up the movie Boy Erased again, um, which by listening to this and it's been a few years since it was released, like go find it on Netflix or Amazon or somewhere, go stream it, watch it, get a copy of it on DVD and watch it. It's hard, but it's really interesting. And my sense of the film the whole time was I was watching, you ever seen one of those Jerry Springer episodes where they put everybody at the Thanksgiving table and they all throw food? Have you seen one of those before? This is like a cultural. No. Okay. Okay, I've watched Jerry Springer, but I haven't watched that. Right. So he's, he did at least one of those episodes where it was like, bring all the family out and then, and they just let them, the fur flies and the audience cheers. And it's just whatever. That was what Boy Erased felt like to me without the comical parts. It was like watching two sides of my family. It was like mom's family and dad's family just going at each other's throats. That's what Boy Erased felt like. 
because there is a sense in which the church is my family and there is a sense in which the LGBT community is my family. Yeah. And it was so, I had never seen it writ that large on that big of a screen. And it was just like, oh my gosh. And it was traumatic. That part of it by itself, regardless of everything it was depicting on screen, that part of it, watch it being like watching two sides of my family just go at it. It was traumatic. And yeah. it helped me answer. It helped me answer a few questions. It helped me ask a few other questions. Like it's just, but the, the sense of, I say all that to say that the sense of family is super real between those two groups. And so mm-hmm. it, it really does feel like getting caught in the middle. For example, some of these, some of these points in the gay script, same-sex attractions reflect categorical distinctions between types of people, lesbian, gay, bisexual, heterosexual types of people. Second point, sexual attractions signal who you are as a person. Third point, sexual attractions reside at the core of your identity, your sense of self. Fourth point, sexual behavior no longer resides in a category of behavior that can be evaluated as right or wrong in and of itself. Rather, it's an expression of identity insofar as you express and enjoy who you really are. Okay, which parts do I agree with and which parts do I don't? Uh, that's complicated. Yeah. Right? So do I think that sexual behavior has points of being right and wrong? Let me, let me back up and, and make this even more general. Are there correct and incorrect places for sex? Not just localities, but actual like relational dynamics. Yes. Mm-hmm. Like for me, as a side B Christian, sex is supposed to be between one man, one woman in the context of covenant marriage. That's it. Mm-hmm. One man, one woman for life. That's the standard in scripture, as far as I'm concerned. Now, is it also an expression of identity? insofar as you express it and enjoy who you really are. Now, okay, depending on how we're defining sexual behavior, are we talking about the actual sex act? Yeah. Or are we talking about methods of dress? Are we talking about manner of speech? What are we talking about? What actually determines a sexual behavior? And that's when, now I I have every, I have most confidence that the way Yarhouse is using it in that sense is the sex. Yeah. But but if we back up and we ask the broader question, what constitutes a sexual behavior? Um, I don't think it's muddying the waters to say that's complicated because some of that's tied up in gender identity and some of that's tied up in cultural expectations of gender mm-hmm. identity and some so these are questions that need to be asked and answered, but it's harder to just have one answer for that. There's not one way to be a faithful straight Christian. And there's not one way to be a faithful gay Christian. Mm -hmm. Like this requires nuance. It's, you know, do sexual attractions reside at the core of your identity, your sense of self, maybe not core identity, but maybe sense of self, depending on how we're going to use those words. Like if I, if, if the person I'm talking to doesn't know that I'm gay, the conversation can get real weird, real quick. Mm -hmm. I don't even need to go down that road because everybody who's listening to this podcast has had those experiences, I'm sure. Yes. If they haven't, wait, you'll have one. Um, it, unless you are just so in the closet that like people don't even ask you about what girls you dated, like th- which mm-hmm. that's a thing, but whatever. So like, I want to be seen and known as who I am and what my preferences are. It's, it's like going through life in a family that loves Star Wars and you just don't like it. And then everyone keeps asking you about Star Wars and you're like, I just don't, I don't care. I don't care at all. <laughs> just stop at asking. All. Now, for the record, I love Star Wars. 
so it's not a thing. But I've also lo- I also love Star-, Star Wars so much I've I've let it go. But that's a whole other podcast. So it, it's it. But all that being said, it's it's really one of those things that's like if someone doesn't know this about me, like they're missing out on a large swath of my experience. Mm-hmm. And obviously, the people that I'm that I'm living life alongside. I want them to know where I'm coming from. And I think who I'm attracted to as a general rule is an important part of that. So. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it, I think that it's so hard for straight people to understand the impact of that because people generally assume you're straight. So you never have to deal with it. Mm -hmm. Whereas like it even happened to me yesterday where Mm. um, I was in a meeting and someone asked like, Oh, so are you dating any girls, right? like any girl right now? And I'm like, nope. They're like, oh, and they just started asking. They were just so shocked. And I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. And it just wasn't a circumstance where I could actually discuss the topic. And so I just kind of let it go. But it kept like the conversation went on for a while. I was like, okay, let's move on. Like, really? Yeah. <laughs> oh, I had a lady who insisted it was a couple churches ago and I had a lady on my worship team who, when we got together to pray after rehearsal, like she was just insisted on praying that I find a wife. She's like, I'm going to pray for your future wife. <laughs> this went on for months. And I finally sat down with her and I said, if you don't stop, I will not be scheduling you for a long time. Like, because mm-hmm. you're, you're making me uncomfortable. I like dudes. You're rubbing this in my face. Like yeah. stop. Yeah. So I, I just, and and people mean well. And they do. I understand that. But like, I also understand that like part of healthy relationship is healthy boundaries. And sometimes me being out to my audience helps me have good boundaries because then I'm not dragged through un- uncomfortable conversations that honestly are uncomfortable for both parties involved, right? Like when someone who's mm-hmm. been grilling you about why you're not dating a girl finds out that you're gay, like they're going to be uncomfortable. <laughs> Potentially, yes. right? Like whether or not that's ever depending. Yeah, I mean, depending. But like most people don't delight in asking them about you know some you know finding an opposite sex partner when they know they're same sex attracted. Like that's not mm-hmm. usually somebody's what somebody enjoys doing. So, like, yeah, I just I think that it's I think that it's super important to to be able to answer the question for oneself. What allows me to live a life of the greatest transparency in a responsible fashion? Yes. And if I'm able to answer that and say, yeah, that involves me being out, whether that's to a few people in my community or most of the people in my community or someone like me where I've got a blog and I'm out to everybody and their brother, like, that not everybody has to be as out as I am, but exactly. I also don't know how I could ever lead worship for Revoice if I wasn't out. That would be very odd. <laughs> um, although I suppose Exodus had straight worship leaders. Um, oh yeah, it did. But but yeah, that's that's over and done with. Um, so done. you know, yeah. No, I I totally agree, and and I I definitely think that. You know, I like the whole thing that Mark Yarhus did with the gay script. As you said, yes. I think even within the points, there's still even more nuance within that. Absolutely. Um, because like you said, if it like that, um, what, what did it say? Sexual, um, same sex attractions resides uh, at your core identity or your core sense of self. You know, I always 
kind of say, I think that even for me, one of the things is regardless of whether it's part of your core identity, for me, it definitely changes my perspective. And mm-hmm. so I've had someone even one time was like, well, why, what's, why do you have to attach gay and Christian? And I understand for some people they don't have to, but I said, I was trying to explain why some, for some people that uh, is important mm-hmm. is because many times when you're gay, your attractions impact the way that you read scripture. Now, it, it doesn't mean that you read the text any better or worse, but for instance, certain imagery and certain passages are going to impact you differently because of your experience. And I'm going to see things differently than a straight person. The same way as a woman is going to read things differently than a man and a black person or a Latino is going to read things different than a white person. An example, one of the images of Jesus that has always been most impactful for me is the image of Jesus as the bridegroom. Why? Obviously, why that would be a huge issue. When I left my ex, that was one of the biggest images that got me through was like, mm-hmm. Jesus is my bridegroom. He is the groom in my life. I, I am engaged to Jesus in a sense. And, mm-hmm. and that got me through. And I was able to have a deeper understanding of that than most straight guys. Most straight guys right. do not in, defer to that image of Jesus. No, they're um, weirded out by it. They're weirded frankly. out by it and they just don't want to deal with it. And that's right. fine. I get it. But I sure. think that also that really calls to the importance of why reading scripture is not an individual act, but a communal yes. act. Yes, absolutely. Um, absolutely. Because I'm going to bring things out of the text that you're not going to bring out. And you're going to bring things out of the text that I'm not going to bring out. And all of those together, when I can hear what you're getting out of the text, you're hearing what I'm getting out of the text. I hear what straight men are getting out of the text. Women get, are getting out of the text. African-Americans, Latinos, all of us can come to an even deeper, richer understanding of what the text of scripture is telling us. Married people, single people. Exactly. the Bible differently. Like, yeah. just the way it is. Exactly. And so I think for me, even when I hear the term gay Christian, it's, it's not even about like putting something on to Christian, but a matter of saying my experience impacts my relationship with Jesus. Yes. So much that it's going to be different than yours Mm -hmm. in many ways. And so I, I think that there's those nuances there and I think he he start he gives it a good in the chapter he gives a good way of explaining it that um, that others can understand. Well, y'all, that's it for part one of our talk on costly obedience. I hope you enjoyed it, and be listening next week for part two. Thanks again for listening. Bye now.